Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Welcome to Sound Practice, the podcast for the American Association for Physician Leadership. I'm your host, Mike Sakopoulos. On this episode of Sound Practice, I will be speaking with Brooke Albright about strategic thinking. Beyond traditional strategies, we will explore the neurobiology of strategic thinking. I hope you find this discussion as interesting as I did. My guest on Sound Practice today is Brooke Albright. She's the founder of Conscious Healthcare Consulting, LLC. She lectures nationally and internationally on uh, such topics as treatment team dynamics, leadership development, and the psychology of strategic thinking. Brooke also teaches a course in the neuropsychological uh, principles of strategic thinking. Brooke Albright, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure. Help me. um, The definition of strategic thinking. The most simplistic definition I can give you is that is it is a complex mental process. Okay. So you've written about the neuropsychological principles involved in strategic thinking. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. So when I say it's a, a mental process, it, there's complexity there because it takes multiple functions of the brain to work in coordination with one another. And so when we talk about effective strategic thinking, what we're really talking about is executive functioning, executive brain functioning, which involves uh, the prefrontal cortex. And it involves the ability to analyze data to sort what data is important or what information is important, what is not important, um, and then be able to synthesize information, synthesize it in a way that we can then imagine a different reality than currently exists. Because foresight is ultimately the goal of strategic thinking. Um, So when I um, initially set out to do uh, a course on strategic thinking, I didn't think initially the focus would be so heavily on the neuropsychology part of it. Um, But what I really started to realize when I dug into the literature and and looked at what had been done before on the topic of strategic thinking, one of the things that was really left out was what happens in that mental process to create effective strategic thinking. Um, So that was how the course and uh, was designed. it was really out of feeling a need and a gap in the information that that seemed to be available. Do you believe that certain types of uh, trauma can impact people's ability later in life to think strategically? Without question. So what we know in terms of um, psychological and neurological development is that trauma thwarts development, especially in the executive functions. Um, So things like um, 
working memory, mental flexibility, and self-control are all impacted by trauma and traumatic experiences. And we generally think of, um, when we talk about culturally examples of trauma, we tend to think of extreme examples. And I was one that um, actually was absolutely guilty of this for a majority of my life. I thought back and said, you know, I had a great childhood. I, I didn't have trauma. And the truth is, I think on a very human level, we have all experienced trauma. We've witnessed trauma and we have experienced trauma um, in a variety of forms, whether that was neglect, um, it could have been as simple as something like spanking. Um, but the experience of trauma is, is something that overwhelms the individual's ability to cope. And so what happens is it kicks off a survival mechanism where then what happens in the brain is that all the resources are um, funneled into fight the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. And um, when we spend a large portion of time in those fight, flight, or freeze responses, we're taking energy away from the development of healthy brain systems or healthy um, brain structures. And um, you can see there's a, a very um, heart-wrenching but um, well-known brain scan of a neglected child versus a well-cared-for child, for example, and it's comparing the brains of um, a, a three-year-old and five-year-old, and again, the th one three-year-old had been neglected, and the one three-year-old was well-cared-for, and then the same again at five, and you can see that the brain structures, the actual structures of the brain are remarkably smaller, um, upwards of 25%. So, um, while when we're talking with physicians and physician leadership, we can understand and assume that these, these are highly functioning individuals. Uh, um, at the end of the day, a lot of physicians have encountered trauma both in their training and in their professional world. Um, so it's important to understand what that does to brain function for sure and not assume just because we're physicians or just because we've been successful or we're professors or researchers that we haven't also experienced trauma. In the age at which trauma is experienced have a direct impact upon the ability to strategically think, or am I incorrect? It does. So there are, you know, Erickson's classic stages of development. So it's not only the type of trauma that it's that it's experienced, but also at what developmental stage that it's experienced. And that's where um, I, I say in the course, actually, that we did that, you know, most individuals that sign up for a course in strategic thinking have no intentions of talking about their childhood <laughs> at all. Uh, but they should. It should be Surprise. part of the process. <laughs> and again, you know, you're talking to a, a deaf psychologist. So of course we go to childhood, right? Um, but a lot of us in the professional world, me included, um, even if we go to therapy, we're like, you know, I don't want to talk about the childhood stuff. Let's just get to my problems right now. Let's talk about the solutions to the problems I'm currently having. But um, the truth of it is, is that the psyche is permeable. And we have an illusion that we hang on to so strongly um, from the human experience that we think that we can compartmentalize our experiences. And even the most introverted, rational, judgment savvy person 
cannot compartmentalize experiences. <laughs> um, and one of the things that we study in, in depth psychology is the unconscious. And we know that an individual's life story is consistently and constantly influencing the present moment. Fascinating. So what is a way to recognize the role of, of ego and the barriers to effective strategic thinking? Um, the, the ego is, um, I like to always think of the ego as our survival tool. It is the animalistic part of our psychology that has kept us alive. So we don't want to demonize the ego or make the ego wrong. In fact, the more we resist ego, generally the more we give it energy and the more distortions that occur in terms of our ability to perceive and engage the world. Um, the first subjective way to understand or to recognize that um, ego is involved is uh, a drain of energy and creativity. Um, but what I like to tie it to, of course, is uh, going a little deeper is it ego ultimately is involved again for survival. And so if we talk about trauma and how we know we're in a trauma response, there is a list and it's, it comes from a lot of research, but in the book in particular, Trauma Stewardship, um, the author does a great job of giving a list of 16 factors um, that will indicate if the ego is active and actually what we call it is a trauma exposure response. But when we know uh, that ego is the function that is triggered, um, it's psychological function is triggered when we're exposed to trauma. So I don't know if you're okay with that, but I'd like to, to read those off. Please. Um, feelings of helplessness or hopelessness. Right. So I feel like I'm in a scenario. It's a double bind. No matter what I do, I can't figure out the solution um, because we know that obviously creativity is diminished. And that's another one. Diminished creativity. You can't think your way out of a box when ego is triggered because ego is rooted in survival. Um, a sense that one can never do enough which then gets into the nitty gritty of, am I enough? And that is the shame cycle that, that we're all trying to overcome, I think, um, as humans. A sense of hypervigilance. Am I constantly on alert? And in a business scenario or a healthcare scenario, um, this is constantly waiting for the second shoe to drop, right? What else is going to go wrong? And so that we're constantly armoring up. And we know that when we're armoring up, we're not fully engaged with the prefrontal cortexes. What's happening is we're working from the animal brain, um, the brain stems that are, are, are really rooted in that, that trauma response of fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Um, an inability to embrace complexity because the brain can't process complexity when the ego's involved. So it generally will um, simplify complex scenarios into black or white us versus them, red or blue, male or female, uh, yes or no. But really when we look at the subjectively lived human experience, um, it's complex, there's complexity everywhere. Um, and so an inability to embrace the complexity of, of the present moment, minimizing. Um, we do this a lot um, as healthcare leaders, we minimize our experiences. We'll say things like, oh, it wasn't all that bad. Um, when we know that that you just 
put all of your effort in, for example, saving a child and that child passed and we minimize it. And we have this mental um, thought process that is conditioned by the culture of medicine that says, buck up, move on. You got bigger things to worry about. So minimizing is a way that ego tries to self-protect. But again, there's consequences to all of these behaviors. Um, chronic exhaustion and fatigue. Like I said, one of the biggest subjective awarenesses is if you're just exhausted and depleted um, and getting into you know, strategic thinking, you can't think strategically or effectively or do much of anything if you're pouring from an empty cup. I mean, that's a, um, it, it sounds, it's a good tagline, but there is truth to that. Um, and the inability to, to, to listen um, and deliberately avoid complexity or problems and inability to listen um, requires that you shut off those survival mechanisms and you are able to take in information that might contradict what you believe to be true. Um, disassociative moments, which is basically, uh, it occurs in everyday life where you are engaged in autopilot, that experience of autopilot, where then you reflect on what have I done for the last 15 minutes and you can't recall. These are moments where we completely go out of body. We go so far into the head that we're not aware of our um of, of our situation subjectively, the environment, the context within which we're existing, um, a sense of persecution. You feel as if this group of people or this situation or this organization or this partner or this manager um, is out to get you. Um, because generally speaking, humans are typically doing the best they can and, and issues of, um, uh, of inner engagement and relationship generally have to do with miscommunication and a lack of understanding. And so this sense of extreme persecution is a great uh, trigger um, that egos involved. And, and then of course, they, they all tie in together. Of course, that will create more hypervigilance and that's this is cyclical um, scenario that we find ourselves in. Extreme experiences of guilt. Um, if you're feeling guilty um, and just below guilt is shame, uh, that is a great indicator of, of ego. And, and guilt and the difference between guilt and shame, I always like to differentiate. Guilt is I did bad. And then the one deeper than that is I am bad. Interesting. Um, fear. Uh, if you're fearful, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious that, that, um, um, that the ego is involved. But um, what I always like to suggest is most, especially those that are at a certain degree of perfectionism and skill and knowledge, don't acknowledge fear. Um, and socially, admitting to being fearful is generally seen as weak. Um, and so what we generally see, which is the next factor that, you know, ego is involved is anger or an extreme cynicism. So we acknowledge it's okay to be angry. Um, it's not okay to be fearful because fearful is weak, but what we know is fear and anger are directly tied, um, is that when we are experiencing fear unconsciously, the conscious response is generally anger. So those are connected mm. in that way. Um, an inability to empathize or numb. Um, and again, if, if you want to be good at strategic thinking, especially in the healthcare environment, you have to be able to empathize with other people's experiences, whether that's the end user, the patient, whether it's members of our 
treatment team. Um, you have to be able to step outside of your role and see it through another perspective. And that ability is completely thwarted when ego is involved. Um, of course, an extreme example of, of chronic ego condition or a chronic trauma exposure response would be addictions. Um, mm. And it's easy, especially in the professional environment, to say, you know, I don't have a problem with addictions because we generally look at addictions to alcohol or street drugs, and those are extreme examples. But how many um, professionals are addicted to, to pharmaceutical medication? and justify that it's okay, or an addiction to technology now, you know, where we check out and we're, we're scrolling for two hours. Um, so an addiction to consumerism, you know, purchasing things to fill that void within. Um, and then the last one is a grandiosity or an inflated sense of self um, and an over-importance of one's work. And, that one's tough because when you're in healthcare, of course, the work that you're doing is important, but it's an extreme sense of grandiosity where you then start to think that you're the only one that's making a difference. You're the only one that matters. You're the only one that knows. Um, and so that's a great indicator that the ego is running roughshod there. That is a, an exhaustive list that uh, I think will all our, our listeners will definitely um, identify at least someone that they know, uh, know with some of those, those characteristics, unfortunately. So um, thank you for that. I think that that was, that was very interesting. Tell me a little bit about the course that you prepared for the uh, AAPL. Sure. Um, again, the intention was to um, do a course in strategic thinking or strategy, and I didn't really initially plan to have a, a strong focus on the neuropsychology of, of strategic thinking, but but when diving into what was currently available, it was just obvious that there was a, a lack of information on um, if we're defining strategic thinking as a complex mental process, well, what does it actually mean in terms of brain anatomy? And what does that actually mean in terms of my subjective experience? And of course, I knew that um, when we're working with the AAPL, we're talking about physicians and physician leaders who are experts at the human body and know more about the brain for sure than I do. However, I knew it was important that if I was going to talk about things like managing ego or the subjective experience of creativity, that if I could tie it to brain structures and make it approachable and meaningful, um, it was probably going to make more of an impact because one of the things that you know, I try to commit to is if I'm going to do something, I want to make an impact and try and fill a need that's not currently being met. Um, which of course brings brings us back to the idea of strategic thinking, which is effectively being able to address the needs of an organization or an environment and then be able to do that, to be able to actually um, address the needs in an effective way, because we don't just want to think strategically. We want to think strategically in an effective way that meets the needs of the moment. Um, so it's effective strategic thinking that, that really got me thinking about neuropsychology and really taking more of a, a structural or a brain-based approach to this process. I want to do a little comparison. Um, with strategic thinking and uh, spiritual thinking. Can you tell me the, the differences and how they may or may not apply to, to healthcare? Sure. Um, so one of the, the things that we can um, classify or qualify in terms of the complex mental process of strategic thinking is that it's both abstract and rational 
and subjective. And what we're talking about is a synthesis of all of these experiences, the ability to take in data and envision something new and different. But, but strategic thinking happens in a cyclical process. We don't just think strategically for no reason. We're thinking strategically for a purpose. And generally, it's the process of thinking strategically so that we can strategically plan and then implement whatever that plan is. And whether that plan is a new medical device, whether that plan is a pharmaceutical drug or a systems change, if we're talking about change management, organizationally, um, structurally changing, you know, making a dent on the, the $4.6 billion a year issue of, of physician burnout. And so when we talk about strategic thinking, it's part of a, a larger process that's that's happening. And the difference then, so with strategic thinking, there is a tangible outcome and whether that's again, a process or, or a product um, or a change within a, an organization, uh, spiritual thinking generally is not as directed. Um, and and the, the product or the outcome of spiritual thinking is really um, a subjective state and an experiential state. Um, and I would think that at least for most of us, when we talk about spirituality and we think of those moments where we're deeply moved, we're talking about things like meaning and significance in one's life. And so if we're talking about meaning and significance in one's life, um, then of course that applies to the current moment um, in the, the challenges that our healthcare organizations and our healthcare providers are experiencing with COVID-19 pandemic, where rates of burnout and, and senses of stress and helplessness and hopelessness are, are on the rise. And I don't think that we're going to be able to quantify the current state of things for some time, because I think the results of what we've all experienced, but especially our healthcare workers, um, are going to ripple through the layers and layers of, of the healthcare landscape for many years. Um, but in terms of, of spiritual thinking, I think it's the connection of something greater than ourselves and how we then interpret that into our lived experience um, in terms of meaning and significance and strategic thinking is really more a directed focus where we are identifying needs of a current moment, organization, or situation, and then coming up with solutions, a plan, and an implementation. Um, and, and so that's how I see those in, in differing. But I think that they're both hugely important in today's environment, again, especially with the COVID-19 pandemic. Absolutely. Now, in your course, you identify the, the role of, of creativity and kind of put that versus cognitive rigidity. Uh, how do they impact the implementation of strategic thinking? So the, the idea of creativity um, is cultivating um, an awareness of what currently is and then using imagination to imagine a different reality. Um, and that is uh, definitely a process that involves both right and left brain thinking. Um, and uh, cognitive rigidity is such a fun topic, especially in the field of healthcare and physician leaders, because these are the smartest and most competent of the smartest and competent, right? I mean, these are the healers, the thinkers, um, 
the wise, the wise ones of our culture. And um, what we know in, in terms of brain structure and executive functioning is cognitive rigidity um, increases with rates of expertise. This makes sense, right? If I have um, you know, an MD, a PhD, an MBA, a CPE, all following my name at each level, I am gaining information um, that creates a sense of competency and knowledge. Um, but what also happens over time with greater repetition, experience, and mastery is cognitive rigidity. And this is actually very efficient, right? Um, because once we master a skill, we wanna be able to move on and, and use mental faculties to attack different things or um, increase our repertoire. But uh, cognitive rigidity says, I already know. And once I already know, I limit brain function and also the subjective experience of a beginner's mind. We talk about in Buddhism, they have this term, the, the beginner's mind. What does that really mean? Um, the beginner's mind is innately curious. It is constantly seeking to know. But if I believe I already know, then we completely shut down that process. And so if we want to be effective in our strategic thinking, we can't already know. We have to cultivate a beginner's mind. Um, we have to cultivate a curiosity about our world, about the situation, about the environment um, that I'm currently working within to be able to really um, create or imagine again what's not currently existing. Help me understand what it means to to say start where you are. Is, is this on a personal uh, level or on a uh, a more organizational level? So I always like to say um, that this change always has to start within first and the organization will follow. Um, you know, standard in quality leadership is you lead by example, right? We know that that old school way of standing on the soapbox and dictating to others um, what should be uh, doesn't work. And if we wanna talk about organizational change, um, especially in the healthcare environment, we have to have leaders who embody the change they want to see. And so we say, start where you are. It seems like some, you know, spiritual new age, you know, one-liner that's used to sell some product, but there is some real psychological truth to that. And starting where you are means being able to take an honest, introspective look at where I'm at. Um, and that creates a degree of self-knowledge and self-mastery, frees up the mental faculties. We fully engage our prefrontal cortexes because we're not trying to defend um, or shame ourselves or um, exhaust energy in other ways. And then we can really identify the needs of an organization from an authentic and true place that then really does accurately meet the needs. Um, so start where you are means start where I'm at literally in the moment, um, because one of the things that is pervasive is so the softer version of trauma is stress, and that's readily accepted, very well documented. So um, I'll give you an example. Um, a new uh, CEO was just promoted, and this individual now is in charge of other physicians that used to be teammates. 
And um, this particular individual has a strong need to prove themselves in the new position. And if my ego is in the driver's seat, I'm not going to be able to effectively analyze where the organization is at and where it needs to go in the future. Because what I'm going to be unconsciously spending energy on is proving myself. Well, proving myself doesn't help the organization. So starting where you are means where am I at right now, emotionally, psychologically, and then how do I cultivate the mental internal processes to then do an accurate analysis of where the organization is and where it needs to go? Fascinating. I'd like to recommend Brooke Albright's uh, course with the double APL to those uh, listeners out there. We'll certainly have uh, links uh, to it as, as well as to uh, her uh, business, should you wish to get in contact. Brooke, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us on Sound Practice. Thank you. I want to thank Brooke Albright for being a guest on Sound Practice. Members of AAPL can dig deeper into this topic by taking Brooke Albright's course on strategic thinking, a course which I highly recommend. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Man Robin, Red Book of Power.